Welcome to International Law Talk of Wolters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. Hi, everyone. This is Jehun Pehlivan. I am the editor-in-chief of the Global Privacy Law Review, GPLR, published by Walters Kluwer International. Also, I co-lead the telecommunication, media, and technology practice group of Linklaters in the Madrid office, and I am an adjunct professor of law at IE Law School in Spain. Today, I have the great pleasure to be with a member of our editorial board, Global Head of Privacy of Novartis, Knut Mager. Hi, Jehun. Um, it's great to talking to you today. Likewise. Knut, you have been working in the pharmaceutical in- industry for over 30 years. Isn't it a bit um, tedious? <laughs> no, not, not at all. I mean, why would you think that pharma is a great, great industry? I mean, I'm, I came to it really by chance back in 1989. I studied law in Berlin, in, in, in West Berlin, and did my legal training there. This was uh, just before the war came down. I did an inter- internship with Sharing AG, uh, which is a multinational or was a multinational company headquartered in Berlin. It's now part of Bayer. And that internship was part of the mandatory training that that is required, as you know, for for German lawyers to qualify as a judge and be admitted to the bar. So at the end of the training, this was just after the war came down, I was asked whether I wanted to join uh, the legal department after my admission. So um, at that point, I I had seen a lot in my training. I trained with with the courts. So I, I trained with judges. Um, criminal judges, civil, administrative. I worked with uh, prosecutors in administration, city administration, and with law firms. I also worked in the notary office. So I've, I've seen the, the broad range of, of the legal pra- practice. And I, I like the international environment uh, in, in sharing. And I like the fact that, that pharma is regulated. So uh, lots of challenges, intellectual challenges for lawyers, and pharma also has an essential purpose. So I stayed. (laughs) I see, but three decades. Wow. So have you ever thought about changing industry? Well, I I can see that um, three decades looks as if um, I'm I'm change adverse, but there has been actually a lot of change. And um, what I like best is really learning. And there, there were so much opportunities that I've been given. I was actually really lucky. I started as a transactional lawyer. Then I, I le- was the head of patents. So I was leading a team in Japan, in the US, in, in Europe at a relatively uh, young age. Then I did a stint outside of legal as the head of corporate strategy. I was hired by Novartis. I, I've been the general counsel of uh, Sandoz, which is the generics division of Novartis, and then had several different legal roles, um, building capabilities in the countries. Uh, so, so it offered me an opportunity to to really learn a lot, and that was that was enough 
uh, change that I needed. And in 2007, as part of my portfolio, I, I started the, the privacy team. So it was really small team, part of a larger pot. Um, portfolio and for the past five years now I've I focused on privacy and I enjoy it very much. Wow, that's impressive, Knut. Sounds like a lot of breadth in your professional career. And let me ask you, don't you see the focus on data protection on privacy as a limiting step? Well I never looked at it like that, but I, I guess you could see it as a as a limiting step, right? If you've been a general counsel and uh, you work close to the business. Um, you could, you could say it's um, it's a step, uh, it's a it's a step back or a limiting step to focus on one legal area, but um, but I don't feel it like that. I think in when when you look at at pharma, um, privacy overlaps um, uh, and actually sometimes collides with other regulation, for instance, on clinical trials. Um, then, then there is the technological change that's driving um, changes in how we innovate, how we operate, how we communicate with patients, with, with practitioners. And, and then, as, as you know, I think you know probably better than me, uh, privacy law is very heterogeneous, right, uh, around the globe. So, so there, it, it's, it may be limited limited as a, as a as a sector of the law but it's actually quite broad and has a, has a lot of challenges so i i consider myself lucky actually not being narrowed down and i i continue to learn i see and it seems that data is playing a progressively more critical role in healthcare as we have recently experienced uh, due to the global covid-19 outbreak and considering that health data is particularly sensitive, or to use the GDPR term, special category data, it seemed that governments had to tread particularly carefully when implementing contact tracing to fight the pandemic, but also when making data available for research. Yes, that's exactly true. And I, I mean, we are in the middle of the pandemic, but as we step back, we can see, and at some point we will be hopefully be stepping out of the pandemic. And what we can see already now and what we will see then is that COVID is a catalyst for a very important discussion that we need to have in society and the discussion that we need uh, to have with legislators and regulators. And it's about the need of data sharing in healthcare and the benefits of the data sharing. Mm -hmm. Good. I hear uh, COVID as a catalyst, need for data sharing. I mean, that sounds a bit scary. Are you arguing for centralized tracing of individuals to fight the pandemic? Uh, uh, no, um, that's not what I meant. I, mean, I was not talking about the individual or, um, or tracing individuals. And then thanks um, for asking and letting me clarify that. And what I was referring to is really innovation. It's about understanding the disease. It's how it spreads. Uh, why, why does it affect different people differently? What are the long-term effects? How can we protect ourselves? How, we can, how can we find therapies? I mean, vaccines um, are preventions, but we also need therapy. 
And to address all those questions, um, these are complex questions, um, you need um, at least two things. Um, you need a lot of data, high quality, uh, very diverse data sets. And then what you also need and what we've seen um, here dramatically increasing um, in the context of COVID and fighting the pandemic is you need collaboration of scientists and that's in every part of the healthcare um, ecosystem. So collaboration uh, of clinicians, academia, industry, governments, and you need this across countries, across boundaries. Uh, so high quality data is needed and that data needs to travel. You mean to fight the pandemic? Uh, yes, uh, in the first instance, to fight the pandemic, but not only to fight the pandemic. And that's why I called it the catalyst for this discussion. It may be obvious uh, to those who work in the industry, but maybe not obvious to all. We have huge unmet medical need in many areas. And that unmet need will grow as the population will continue to grow. Life expectancy will increase chronic diseases will be on the rise. So we need to accelerate innovation to meet all those challenges, those challenges of more people, higher density, older people, and potentially sicker people. So considering um, the challenge, uh, also healthcare systems will need to be much, much more effective and efficient. And that's why we need data sharing. But you can't be arguing for the transparent patient without the fundamental right to data protection. Maybe I was not clear. It's not knowing everything about the individual patients. Um, of course, we are interested in the patients when we provide care. But when it comes to um, finding new treatments, um, broadly improving, and it's then extending people's life, um, we are interested in the patient as part of a population. So patient uh, contributing to a research data set. What we must do then, of course, is to protect the patient from harm. And uh, that harm can result from the use of um, their data. And it, it can be stigma, discrimination, also identity theft. And we must protect them from that. And we need to be very clear that uh, the data is used for legitimate health research and not, for instance, research on bioweapons, but, but it would include research to make health systems more sustainable around the world. And then we need to, um, to use all the safeguards um, that we are available, technical, organizational, administratives. And, and here, uh, just to... to um, to emphasize, in the medical field, there are a lot of safeguards already. So professional confidentiality, ethics boards, and, and then also pseudonymization. And uh, so, so we need to base the processing on those safeguards and on the principle of accountability. So like, like many companies, Novartis, for instance, as part of our privacy principles, we ensure legitimate and meaningful collection and also minimum retention. And this is how we ensure that we only collect data that's relevant and purposeful 
and that it's only kept for as long as we can legitimately use it. And why not just anonymize the data? Yeah, anonymization uh, works very well in um, certain areas, in, in, in particular um, uh, where, where you don't need to have a very deep analysis. But I, I see in practice two key problems with, uh, with anonymization. The, the, the first one uh, re re relates to utility. So the more identifiers you take away in a data set, uh, you lose utility. And since you want to understand um, uh, in a, a population in depth, uh, you don't need at the beginning all the questions that you're going to ask to your data set. And you may have stripped away just those identifiers uh, that may answer the question that would really lead to a breakthrough. So that's one problem. The other problem is that, as far as I understand, the legal standards of what is anonymized varies across jurisdictions, and it's not even settled in Europe. So while, so while we are on the topic um, uh, of anonymization, can we briefly talk about the Breyer decision? So the CJEU decision on dynamic IP addresses. Exactly. And what would you say it's about? Well, in this landmark case, the CJEU ruled that dynamic IP addresses may constitute personal data, even where only a third party, and in this case, an ISP, so an internet service provider, has the additional data necessary to identify the individual, but only under certain circumstances. So the possibility to combine the data with this additional data must constitute a, quote, means likely reasonably to be used to identify, unquote, the individual. So I think this judgment has a general impact in that it addresses the question of whether a subjective approach or an objective one should be applied. And I think this affects questions like anonymization. Uh, that's a, an extremely concise summary. Um, so the way I understand uh, the decision is that um, here the, the European Court of Justice uh, really established firmly a subjective or relative theory of anonymization. Hmm. Although the CJEU did not expressly resolve that question, I believe it did favor the subjective or relative approach that uh, holds that third-party knowledge needs uh, to be considered, but only to a certain extent. So the CJEU examined whether the data controller has the legal and practical means which enable it to identify an individual with additional data a third party has about that person. Also, Recital 26 of the GDPR formulates a risk-based approach to determine whether or not data is personal uh, in nature and where identification is reasonably likely to occur, personal data then is in play. Where this is not the case, the information in question is not personal. So Breyer case confirms, uh, in my opinion, this risk-based approach set out under the GDPR as 
the CJEU evaluated in this decision the actual risk of identification? I um, I agree with that. And so so here's a hypothetical hypothetical just building on the facts. So so in the facts as you just presented them, prior is about two data sets, and each of them are anonymous upon their creation, right? And then um, because they could be combined, the resulting set contains personal data. So what in the case if you have a non-anonymous set to start with, so the opposite, and then it's separated into multiple sets, so each new data set would contain anonymous data, and the, the separate controllers, there would be separate controllers of the data sets, and they would not have the means and would not be allowed to access the other data sets. In this hypothesis, or in this hypothetical set of facts, applying the logic that you just outlined, um, would, wouldn't, um, wouldn't anybody held um, uh, personal data anymore? Um, that's potentially far-reaching reading of the case, and I think a theory that would have to be settled and confirmed by courts, I guess. I agree it's far from settled, and um, I also agree it's for the courts, not for us or the, um, the DPAs, um, to settle it. But I believe it, it requires um, um, further analysis, and, and I think it's a necessary analysis because it may have an impact on the ability of sharing data. Um, and I'm sure there must be legal academic work um, looking at the, this. And this is now, um, unfortunately, being a practitioner, I have limited bandwidth to follow all publication. Sometimes it, it feels like a tsunami and it's, it's very difficult to stay afloat. Now, um, let me ask you, um, you are really a practitioner and accomplished attorney. You are also teaching, you're an academic, you're an, um, the editor of an important journal. Are you aware of um, such analyses around um, different um, theories of anonymization? So I would say that in the academic literature, there has long been a debate as to whether there's a need to only focus on the data controller, so a subjective approach, as we said, or any third party, which is a, an objective approach. Many authors have criticized the objective approach, highlighting that the reference to any third party would actually eliminate this risk-based approach we just discussed and would eliminate the need for any risk assessment because it, it compels the data controller to always make the worst possible assumptions and even when, if they are not relevant to the specific context. And it is also interesting to see that some supervisory authorities appear to have embraced a halfway test between the objective and subjective approach. For example, in the UK, the ICO formulated the motivated intruder test, whereby companies should determine whether a motivated intruder could achieve re-identification if motivated to attempt this. Oh, that's, oh, that's fascinating. And uh, you, you, you mentioned the, 
recital 26 six and prayer the the means are reasonably likely to be used so i wonder how that would inform the motivated intruder test and um, i'm looking forward to more publications on that but um but just to to push it a little bit further can i ask you another question sure good fire away so thanks so if we apply um, a relative theory of anonymization, as we just discussed. Why is it that data that's fully encrypted by a controller, why is it that that is not considered anonymous? So if a controller holds the encryption key and it's a, it's a robust key, locks the key away, has no right or promises not to share it, um, why is such data then considered personal information when it's transferred to a processor? No backdoors, rock-solid encryption? Yeah, in this hypothetical set of facts, yes. Well, I think these are strong arguments to defend that such data should be considered anonymous. And this relativist approach to identifiability was actually endorsed in other contexts as well. For example, in the Safe Harbor Agreement, now invalidated, the European Commission had considered that the transfer of key-coded data to the US was not a personal data export where the key was not revealed or transferred alongside the data. But again, that would have to be decided by courts, shouldn't it? Um, Of course, I mean, by by courts, unless... um, it's completely unambiguous um, in, in the law, but then I think still the courts. Um, why I was raising it here for the sake of our discussion, um, I, um, I believe it requires <clears throat> further analysis. And um, it's relevant because we are moving to new technical safeguards like homomorphic encryption or multi-party computing. Understood. Let's move away from thought experiments and okay. back to consent. Why do you think consent doesn't work? So con- consent, of course, does work in many, many cases. And it's still used widely, can be used widely, but it's not the only legal, only legal basis. And we know that it doesn't really work in certain circumstances. We know it doesn't work where you have power symmetry, so where you don't have a free will and consenting. And it it also doesn't work if you uh, need to speedy um, act in case of um, emergencies, also in the interest of the data subject. Why it doesn't work in health research is because it it creates a bias. What you need uh, if you work on large data sets are high quality and diverse data sets and they need to be free of bias. That means you need to include all parts of the population. There's also an ethics of inclusion. Now, if you ask for consent, you're, you're limiting um, first um, by who you ask and second then, um, you select for for those who are interested in research, uh, who 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 really care, um, while the others may also benefit from the research and their data may be as relevant and important. That's that's why uh, that's why consent doesn't work because it creates bias in the data set. I see. 
if I accept that logic, this would also apply to structure dynamic consent. Uh, you know that dynamic consent has been advanced as the best solution. Uh, yes, and I've been following this uh, discussion yeah, very closely. And at some point, I also thought it could be it could be a solution, but then um, as I listened to data scientists and um, what I learned about bias, I would say dynamic consent uh, would even amplify and create more bias. And this is inherent in the way it's supposed to work, right? If you, can, uh, if you imagine for each and every research project, um, you would have to ask... Um, whether you would consent to that specific purpose. Now think about um, yourself and um, how you interact with your devices, right? Think, think for a moment that um, everybody would um, have to spend time really looking at, at, um, at new consents, understanding the purpose. Uh, who, who would spend the time, have the energy, knowledge, time, patience to to engage here. So this would limit the collection really to a very, very small population of, of highly tech-savvy people who would actually have the time, the patience to read and the passion maybe to read multiple requests potentially every day and who can understand them fully and who would care to engage. Uh, yes, I agree. It's The balancing is in the in the GDPR, but when it comes to, to special categories and health data are sensitive and therefore there are special categories, as we all know, it requires member states enacting a law. And that's for good reasons. Um, so for good reasons that a law is required. Uh, when we balance fundamental rights, we need, should have a very robust societal discussion um, which then would uh, be followed by a legislative discussion resulting uh, in a law. And some countries have enacted framework. It's just a pity that we couldn't have had that at the European level. Uh, so we, we are losing or we, we risk at losing the benefit of harmonization in such a critical area of health research. Yes, the legislative trialogue between the European Commission, the Parliament, and the Council unfortunately failed uh, to reach full harmonization regarding the GDPR clauses on scientific research ex exception. And it, it has eventually been left to the member states. Also, the GDPR shows significant ambiguity between individuals' control over their personal data and the concept of public interest as a counterbalance. That's exactly right. And for, for researchers, therefore, the GDPR is a mixed blessing. So on one hand, um, it, at its face, it exempts uh, scientific research um, in certain, certain respects. And, um, and one of those requirements is uh, the requirement to obtain the data subject's consent to processing. On the other hand, it leaves the, the, this research exemption completely to the member states, and thereby it perpetuates a fragmented approach to data protection health research, uh, where, as, as we discussed earlier, it's really important that it happens um, across countries. So we need collaboration. That has been the problem um, 
of the previous uh, directive, and it has not been solved by GDPR, although GDPR was set, set out to harmonize. Um, as I pointed out earlier, it's essential to, to, to create trust with patients. So I believe we need to frame the discussion in terms of accountability and the promise that researchers are making to patients. And I mentioned earlier that there are very strong safeguards already in health research, professional confidentiality and ethics committees. So patients can expect their data to be used in meaningful health research. And they can expect that the results should not be traced back to them if they don't want that. And I believe this trust and accountability can be achieved, and I would say can be better achieved without providing consent. And I would say this is arguably a, a reasonable limitation on the right to privacy in pursuit of a legitimate, legitimate aim of public health and health research. Right. Knut, another challenge under the GDPR is the purpose limitation principle. So according to this principle, the personal data may only be processed for specific purposes. So at the time of collecting personal data, the data controller should have determined and specified for which purposes the data will be processed. Does this mean that if personal data is obtained for research purposes, the nature and scope of the research will have to be specified? Exactly. So this requires companies, but not only companies. Um, it requires everyone who's conducting health research, so clinicians, academics, and as I said, uh, health research is often a public-private collaborative effort across borders. It requires all those players to have a very clear view on the nature and the objectives of a research project, and that's even before commencing it. So this makes it challenging to undertake research projects where the purpose of the study is to identify and formulate the scope of the actual subsequent research. And I would like to add here that, um, of course, there's a compatible uh, use uh, provision, um, which then also points to the research exemption and to appropriate safeguards, but that's also left uh, to the member states. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's very tricky. And it seems to me that a lack of clear and workable solution for companies conducting research projects will not really be in line with the EU's objectives of fostering innovation, growth, competitiveness as part of its digital single market strategy. Indeed, and um, also not in line with the declared objective of the GDPR to harmonize uh, data protection um, across Europe. Um, it's, a, it's a fragmentation uh, due to um, the, the varying requirements of the member states, um, which are um, provided for in GDPR. And then combined with um, a very strong notion and requirement um, of explicit consent, pseudonymization, anonymization, and um, uh, often not, as we've discussed, often not uh, clearly 
legally defined. And that makes it challenging for both, as I said, academia and companies to conduct their research projects in accordance with GDPR. And therefore, it's difficult to make really full use of the promise of health data to improving and extending people's lives. Well, maybe with the European agenda now on AI and the European data space, there will be movement in the right direction. For instance, the European Commission announced in its communication on the European strategy for data, its plans for European data spaces, including in the area of health data, and for European federated infrastructures for the hosting of such data spaces, as well as other measures for data sharing ecosystems. Exactly. And this is really a very exciting, encouraging development. And there's really so much going on now in uh, in fostering and forming um, a European data space. And it's also much needed. And it's much needed, and I would like to say this here, not only with regard to privacy, uh, where we need clear, harmonized laws, as we've discussed. But what we also need is we need to create very clean, high-quality data sets. We need to uh, create fair data, so it has to be findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And we need to build the appropriate governance around that. We need to build the capabilities in Europe. We need to create the IT infrastructure. We need to create the research infrastructure. So we, uh, in addition, on top of that, we, we need uh, to create um, a cultural environment of collaboration across countries between public and private players. That's a gigantic task. Um, that uh, And it's a necessary task. And I, I know it may sound very cheesy and pathetic, but as, as a father of five kids, I think it's a necessary task that we owe to our children. That's right, Grunt. So much to do, so much to talk about. But we are at the end of our time together. I echo what you said in the beginning of our podcast. It is a fantastic moment to be working in this field generally, but also as lawyers. So, Knut, it was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for setting aside time from your busy schedule and for sharing with us your deep knowledge of this sector and vision. I, I have to thank you, Chavin, uh, for taking the time uh, to talk to me. You're driving an important publication with the Global Privacy Law Review. And, and I'm looking forward to many, many thought-leading articles, maybe on research with health data, on balancing of rights, on anonymization and encryption, on the conversion of privacy laws, and so on and so on. So many topics. And then hopefully we will have more opportunities for discussion, you and, uh, you and I. So with that, bye, Chain. Bye, Knut. So we have now come to the end of our podcast. Thank you very much to Walters Kluwer for organizing this podcast and, of course, to all of you for taking the time to listen to us. We hope you found it interesting. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit kluwerlaw.com or follow us on social media.